are in 1 Corinthians 15 again today. So 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll be looking really just at the last verse of the chapter this morning. But, but particularly, any, any sense of guilt that mothers might have over, over not being a, quote, better mother, um, that can sometimes be aggravated by preachers on Mother's Day. Uh, there, are, there have, um, you know, the kind of the sermon that's basically saying, here's the perfect model of the biblical mom. Now be that. <laughs> Go get after it. Uh, you need to be better as a mom. And and that's not that uncommon, unfortunately. There are sermons like that. There are many blogs out there like that. There are many Facebook posts like that. There are books and podcasts that are messaging that. And it just kind of throws fuel on the fire that's already raging in you of guilt and shame and regret. So I, I know that this is a real challenge for, for many mothers. And so, and that's of any age, um, and so while, while this Mother's Day message, it's not going to come from a text that's dealing particularly with motherhood or, um, or, or anything like that. It, it has wonderful and liberating application to moms and, as J.K. said, every one of us who was born to one. Uh, so this is, this is for all of us today, and there's wonderful encouragement. So kind of the heading that we're going to be looking at this last verse in this chapter today is just these three encouragements, three encouragements to weary moms and the rest of us uh, in light of resurrection hope that we've been, we've been reveling in over the last several weeks. And so, and when I say weary moms, that's not intended to be some kind of jab at you, you know, like, man, you look exhausted, you know, that kind of thing. So this is not a statement on your physical appearance or your mental uh, state right here. It's not that, but I, I mean weary uh, because you, moms, like all of us, we, we continue to live in a fallen, messed up world, as J.K. was alluding to. We have stuff, and it's exhausting at times, and sometimes it's overwhelming. There, sin and death that we're looking at here, it is still doing its dirty work, and it's wreaking havoc in our lives. Um, and nothing is easy. Uh, in this fallen world, nothing's simple, nothing's pain-free, nothing's uh, problem-free. We are, we are still waiting for Christ's return. We are still waiting for that hope of our resurrection bodies and for all things to be made new. And so we're, while we're waiting, uh, we, we get weary. And there's a, there's a weariness. There's a, there's a longing for rest. That's how the future is set before us. That's what's drawing us near this day of rest and gladness we sing and so you may be physically worn out today. You may be very well rested and you slept good last night. You may be emotionally drained. You may be full and happy today. You may be relationally prospering or you may just be floundering in relationships right now. But all of us need this encouragement. And so mothers and the rest of us. And so, and this is what I think often, uh, what I attribute much of the discouragement that we face sometimes it's, 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 there is this lack of understanding, this lack of awareness, this lack of, of, of eagerness, really, for Christ's return in the modern church. And I think that's behind much of, much of the discouragement that many believers live, live under. We often lack this kind of long, eternal perspective that, that, the, that the Bible, particularly the New Testament, calls for us to, to embrace. And so much of... You think of motherhood in particular. So much of motherhood is, is in particular, it's focused on the here and now. 
the, the, if you're a young mother, the next diaper to change and the next, you know, the next bottle to make and the next, next meal, the next bath, the next little moment of discipline and difficult conversation. And it's just, it's just right there in front of you. And so today we're kind of lifting our eyes, lifting our eyes to see our, our present lives. It's not denying the reality of those immediate present challenges and, and realities, but we're lifting our eyes to see, to see our present lives through the lens of resurrection hope. And that's what I think this, this passage calls us to today. So three encouragements today in light of resurrection hope. And the first one is this. It's that Christ's victory over death, it changes everything for weary moms and the rest of us. And so the, 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 the exhortation, the encouragement is just to revel in it. And so look at, look at verse 58. Now we'll, we'll back up in just a moment, but... There's an imperative in this verse that we're going to get to. But before there's a command, there's a conjunction. Or if you're a grammar nerd and you want to be really specific, there's a conjunctive adverb here. And, and it's the very first word in the SV here, that therefore. Therefore. So what, is, what does that mean? Well, in this case, it means that before there's ever a do, or in, or in this verse, before there's a be, there's a done that's what the therefore is pointing back to. So therefore is connecting what follows with what precedes. Therefore is, more specifically we could say, what's going to be said is based upon what's already been said. All right, that's, that's the point that I'm making here. And so before this therefore is this whole chapter that we've been seeing together, 1 Corinthians 15 on the resurrection. And so it climaxes in verse 55 to 57. So look there with me. We see these celebratory words that... As, as Paul, and this is Paul, he's not, he, he, he brings um, doctrine that we've been looking at here of the resurrection, but he brings that and he weds it together with doxology, with praise. He preaches and he praises as he, as he writes, and so he does here. And so it comes to this culmination in verse 55, death, verse 54, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Remember, that's that taunting song. Ah, where are you? Christ wins. Death, you lose. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this, this culmination, this big climax, since God has achieved through Christ ultimate victory over sin and death. And then Death, then, it does not have the last word in our lives any longer because that's true. Therefore, that's, that's what he's saying. So this death-defeating resurrection of Jesus Christ that he's made the case for in this chapter, which means that we, we can be certain that we also will be raised to meet him one day, that changes everything, everything. Our lives will never be the same again. Everything in the Christian life is rooted in and grows from this reality. That's what's behind this little word, therefore. Everything's connected. Everything that he's going to say is based upon what he's already said. So the, the motivation we have to be and to do, it's not our track record of winning for the Lord. It is, it is Christ winning on our behalf. He's secured the victory. We have the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Moms, listen, don't look within yourselves for the resources you need. Don't look around you and 
I know that's a temptation, especially in this day and time, to look around and we want to compare ourselves to others to see if we're winning in motherhood or not. That's a, that's a hopeless, hopeless way to live. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's bondage to live this way. And, and, and the, the appeal here, just with this little word, therefore, it's saying, he's saying, look to Christ. Look to Christ. Revel in his decisive victory for you. That's true. That we all need to this. And so this frees us from, from fear. This gives us freedom to then live life, to be, to do with gusto. It's like uh, we do this a lot now. At least I do. A lot of sporting events happen on Sundays. And so this is one of the great time things about living in the day we live. We can record those uh, events and watch them later. And I generally try not to know. I try to... Uh, not check the news or anything to see who wins so I can be surprised when I watch it. But even if you, if it's a big game and it's a team you really, you really follow and you really love, then even if you know the outcome, it's still enjoyable to watch that game. In some ways, it's actually, it can be more enjoyable uh, if you know that they win. And, and by that, I mean you, you, you can pay attention. So if you know the outcome and you're watching this, you can, uh, Thomas, you can relate to this. I know he's a big soccer fan. And so he, if, if, if um, Brazil, excuse me, I almost lost it there for a second. I about really insulted you. Um, but if Brazil's playing and you know they win and you know they're, you know they're going to win, you can watch the details of that game and you can, you can really see how the ball's moving because you're not so concerned. You're not fearful of whether they're going to win or they're going to lose. And so this is, this is the encouragement for us. Our eternity is fixed. Our hope is certain. We saw this in this chapter because Christ has risen and we are joined to Christ. We will be raised. It is a certainty. If we, if we, are, if we, um, if we come from the man of earth, if we come from Adam, the man of dust, we will certainly be raised in the likeness of the man of heaven. There's no question. And so this is, this is our certainty. He's not hanging in the balance. The Christ has secured ultimate Victory for us over sin, over death. Therefore, in light of that beautiful, powerful reality, everything changes. So that's the first encouragement. Moms and to all of us is that Christ's victory over death changes everything. Now, before we move on to the next point and the, and the commands in this verse, I just notice the way that he addresses them. These, these often... Uh, Stumbling, kind of slow to get it, um, wayward, forgetful, sometimes foolish believers in this church. They've, they've done, they've said, they've believed, they've acted in very foolish ways. And notice how he dresses them. Therefore, my beloved brothers, beloved brothers. That's not just Paul saying, hey, I love you guys. And just, this isn't just speaking of how Paul does love them. He is affectionate towards them. But this is a statement of the Lord's love for them. These are loved brothers. And the reason they're brothers is because of God's love for them in Christ. And so don't just blaze past that. This is grace. This, Paul loves them as family. And he sets his whole exhortation here in the context of this affectionate love. This is a community. These are people that he, def, he deeply loves, yes, but who are loved by God. And, and it's God's grace in Christ, that grace which was revealed in Christ who was crucified, 
buried, raised on the third day, that enables him to address them this way as much-loved, much-loved brothers and sisters in Christ. That's included. So church, so just say you are relentlessly loved by God. No matter how much your life seems to be bouncing against the guardrails of life, you are, you are loved. Mothers, you are, you are tirelessly, unwaveringly, lavishly loved by God if you are in Jesus Christ. It's period. There's no disclaimer, except, or but. That's it. Whether you feel the warmth of that love today or not, it's true. You are beloved sisters, brothers. You are, you are the object of God's unstoppable, amazing love. And that's all kind of wrapped up in here as the first encouragement for us is just all that we have in Christ, all that he's been laboring to show us in this chapter, and honestly, throughout this letter, and then he gets to this big, therefore, in light of that, in light of Christ's victory that's made us these objects of eternal, everlasting love, be and do. That's the second encouragement. So, first encouragement, Christ's victory over death changes everything. Second is this, is the gospel, it gives us sure footing. It gives sure footing to weary moms and to the rest of us. And so the encouragement to us is remain firm in it. And that's what we see. So you see there, therefore, my beloved brothers, and then the little word, be. That's the command. That's the only command in this verse. This is the controlling imperative command for the rest of what follows. So he's gonna, this, this, you could put this before, be steadfast, be immovable, be always abounding. But this is, this is the imperative. And it's a... I'm trying to get too technical, but it's a present imperative, which just simply means that it is, it is to be this continuous, habitual pattern of our lives. This is not like a, a little, a little, a few, a few decisive moments that are kind of scattered across our lives. He's saying, but the whole course of our lives, this is, this is who we're to be in light of all that we have in Jesus. And so he's, he's, he says first, be steadfast, immovable. Those are close synonyms. They have slightly different uh, kind of nuances and meaning, but they're very, they're very close in what they're saying. And so it's be steadfast and movable. Now, we hear that, and maybe, I hope this is not how you read this, but maybe you're thinking, be, um, be stubborn, <laughs> be stodgy, be obstinate, be unyielding, be hard as granite and just as cold, uh, be stuck in the mud. That's... That's not it. And, and he doesn't mean uh, be lazy, be lethargic, be passive, and just kind of waiting around until Christ returns and, and, and we're raised. That's not, that's not at all what he's saying. He's going to make that clear in the, in, in the next statement. But he says, but be steadfast. And literally, just the literal meaning of this is to sit. It's to sit. The ideas of, of being settled or or situated, stable. If you're on an airplane and, you know, you encounter turbulence, the flight attendant will come on and say, you know, we've encountered some turbulence. Please take your seat for your own safety, that kind of thing, because that's, that's how we're stable. If you've ever been walking in the bathroom or walking down the aisle and when you really hit bad turbulence, it's hard, and you see the flight attendants, and they'll even take their seats if it's really bad because it's not safe, and, and we'll get knocked around, and so... So this is what he's saying. Just be situated. Be, be stable. And then he says, be immovable. Immovable. Not, 
this is a negative, stated negatively here, negatively here, not swayable, not, not sway, not shifting. And so together, these, these words, they're, they're communicating, be, be firmly fixed, be deeply rooted, securely situated. That's the idea. Now, what, what is he talking about then? What are we, in what realm, in what way are we to be steadfast and immovable? Well, we have to consider the context to know what he's talking about. What, what is he saying by here? You see, the church, remember, the church has been challenged by these teachers, those, these people in the church who denied the resurrection, denied the future bodily resurrection of believers in particular. And so what Paul's saying here at the end of this chapter after he's marvelously defended the resurrection of Jesus and our future hope of resurrection, he's saying, don't be swayed. Don't be moved away from this truth. Don't, don't let them rattle your hopes. Stay, stay settled in your convictions on this sit in this stuff. Just stay put. In essence, he's saying, as we look at the whole chapter, he's saying, just re Remain firm in the gospel. Look back with me to the, how the chapter begins. And this is where everything else flows in this chapter. And he's saying, just don't be moved from the hope of the gospel. Verse 1. Now, I would, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news of Jesus that I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. You take that. This is what he's encouraging them. Think, be steadfast. Be immovable. Remain, remain firm in the gospel of Christ. The winds of opposition to the gospel, they're, they're blowing against you, church. But be steadfast. Be immovable. Sit in this. Stay firmly situated here. And so we shouldn't, we shouldn't be blown around by every wind of doctrine, Paul tells, says elsewhere. We shouldn't be easily just kind of tossed by circumstances in our lives that just seem so, that, that make it seem like they're contrary to revealed truth. Like God says he's good, but this is happening. So I don't know. We don't know. Be steadfast in our hope. We need to be steadfast, deeply rooted in what we believe, namely the gospel of Christ. That's what he's. That's what he's saying here. He says something very similar to the Colossians in Colossians chapter one, verse twenty-three. He says he urges them to be stable and steadfast, not shifting. That's actually the word immovable, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. That's the same idea here, I think. So moms, just make some application to you. you. Live your lives out of this gospel. This is, this is where our roads go. Never move away from, from this message. The whole of your life is to be this application of gospel reality. He's saying to you, he's saying to all of us, stay Stand firm here. Sit here. Remain steadfast. Don't let anyone move you away from the truth that you have, have heard and have believed by which you have been saved. I know there are, there are circumstances, there are situations in our life that are so difficult. And some of you are walking through them now and 
you have been through those, and some of you, and we, we all will. And we might be tempted to, to shift our hope off of the gospel onto something else that we think is more secure, is more stable. Isn't that, I mean, it's not like we, it's not generally an assault on our convictions in terms of like we, we're doubting the truths of the gospel. Was Jesus really crucified? That's not where it usually happens, where we kind of, we lose that footing and that, that firmness in our convictions in the gospel. It generally, it, it, it just doesn't seem to work. And so we're looking for something else that would be more stable, something that I can cling to and hold to. This isn't enough. That's where it generally, the temptation comes. And, and so in, in the desperation of parenting, we were hoping in a, in a parenting plan or we're, we're grabbing on, if I could just get away and have this, you know, two-week break, if I could just, if we could relocate and move and get in different schools and if we could just change this in our life or if we can just, if I can just get past this season and get into this new season of parenting, then, then everything's going to be fine. Listen, none of those things are necessarily bad. There's nothing wrong with moving and and, and, and looking forward to teenage years or past that or something like that. Nobody looks forward to the teenage years, but uh, sorry, teenage children. Um, but none of those are bad in themselves, but, but they're not to be our hope when we're weary. That's, that's not what the, the Lord says, come to me. Come to me when you're, when you're weary and bring, bring your, your, your challenges to me. Press into me. Remain firm in the gospel. Gospel-rooted hope. Unflinching, unwavering in it. That's what we need. Jerry Bridges famously said, just preach the gospel to yourself daily. We're rehearsing this truth. We're singing the gospel. We're praying it. It's, it's showing up in our, in our prayers. We're memorizing scriptures that, uh, that unfold the beauties of the gospel. We're intentionally seeing its application in all of our life. That's the kind of stuff we're talking about here. <clears throat> so the first encouragement. Christ's victory over death changes everything. And we just need to revel in that reality. Second encouragement. The gospel gives sure footing to us. And the exhortation is remain in it. And the third encouragement is this. It's labor in the Lord. Labor in the Lord by weary moms or by any of us. It's never wasted. And so resolve to keep at it. So he says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Be immovable. And he says, be always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So as we, as we stand firm in the gospel, it's not just that we, or as we sit in the gospel in the, the wording of here, we, we're, we're not just sitting still. It's not just passivity. There's, there's, this, there's to be this abounding that's going on. But, a, but abounding in the work of the Lord, it grows from being steadfast and immovable in the gospel. That's how these relate. So that's where, that's the only way that we're going to flourish and, and good works is, is as we remain put in the gospel. And so he says, but abound, always be always abounding in the work of the Lord. What's the work of the Lord? Now, he doesn't really specify here. <clears throat> Broadly, it can mean anything we do as believers. It could be the work of the Lord. Narrowly, he could have in mind more of that kind of official uh, technical ministry of the gospel. He uses this, this expression both ways in the New Testament. And so I think it's probably mid-range 
looking at the context of 1 Corinthians. And so he's not just talking about being a pastor or being a missionary or Christian worker or something like that. I don't think that's, that's how he's using it. This isn't irrelevant to those who aren't Christian workers in that technical sense. But in the context of the letter, it's likely referring to, to that work which believers engage in, all believers engage in, for the sake of the gospel and the good of the church. Using our gifts to build up the body and herald the gospel. That's what he's been laboring to say in this letter. And so look back to chapter 14. He uses the same word, actually abound, in this context and in this way. He says in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 12, So with yourselves, since you are eager for the manifestations of the Spirit, those gifts of the Spirit and those demonstrations of the Spirit and the gifts that he gives his people for this building up of the body, he says, strive to excel, that's the word, verb form, to abound in building up the church. I think that's the idea. One commentator said, just what is meant by the Christian labor, what, excuse me, what is meant by the work of the Lord is the Christian labor of calling the church into being, that evangelistic work, and building it up. I think that's what he has in mind. So it's not tightly restrictive. It's not just preaching or cross-cultural missions or you know, being a Sunday school teacher in, in, in those ways, but it's probably not completely open-ended as well. And there can be a, some that want to make that, but I mean, if you're tinkering with model train, no offense to any model train enthusiasts here, this is not my intention. I was trying to think of something that I didn't know anybody did in here, so if you do this, I'm sorry. But if you're tinkering with model trains in your basement and you're spending hours and hours and hours doing that all by yourself, nobody is included in that hobby with you and Nobody knows it, and that's why the preacher's using it as an example. Um, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that as a form of recreation, but I don't think that's what Paul has here by doing work in the Lord. I don't think that's the, can you do that to the glory of God? Certainly, I just don't think that's what he has in mind. Um, and so, but, but, but this isn't to be just like in these moments where, oh, this is the Lord's work, I'm doing this one activity. No, all of our lives are to be leveraged for God's mission. There, there, there's work that all of us are called to. This is in a select group. We're, we're leveraging our lives for the sake of the gospel. We're seeing all, every aspect of our lives through the lens of the Great Commission. And, and, and I want to be about the Lord's work, the Lord's, the, what he's doing in the world always, even in the mundane stuff of life. And so you just think of motherhood. There are endless opportunities for mothers to be engaged in the Lord's work through the seemingly kind of just basic responsibilities and, 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 and patterns of life. And yet to do it with dependence upon the Lord and, and with an eye for the glory of God and with the hope of building, building up others, our children and others, our neighbors, our family and our church and the community for the glory of God. That's the idea. You know, this, is, this, is what, this is the opportunity that's set before us and the encouragement from moms. I'm not... It's not a, adding a lot of, you know, activities. I've got to sign up for more responsibilities. That's not what this what pastor's saying here. But just saying in the rhythm of life, just seeing those opportunities you have through school and through in your neighborhood and, and with your home to open the doors and hospitality and, 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 and looking, looking outside for those opportunities and le leveraging your life for the building up of the body through discipleship of older to younger and small group and serving the flock in different ways and, 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 and meeting for folks and encouraging one another, praying for one another. These, this is the work of the Lord. So I just, I, I, I just kind of trying to find that 
balance that I think is what, the, which is in the vein of what Paul's been communicating to this church at Corinth. And so, note this real quick. It is the Lord's work. It's not just our work for the Lord. It is, it is His work. The Lord initiates the work. The Lord owns the work. The Lord equips for the work. The Lord supplies the work. The Lord, the Lord uh, <coughs> oversees the work. The Lord examines the work. It's His work. His working. And so, we're not just doing something as God is just kind of sitting by watching us. He is working he is building his church. He is, he is uh, accomplishing his, his work in this world. We're simply joining in with what the Lord is doing. We're joining him in his work. It's his work, though. And so, okay, but here's, the, here's where I really want us to see. What, what does he tell us about this work? How is this work to be done, the work of the Lord to be done? And there are a couple words here. One is this word always. We should always be about this work. Be always abounding in the work of the Lord at all times, not seasonally, not just, you know, in those moments of, of, of effort and work, not just when it's convenient, but always, which means he has in mind, again, the, the, even the mundane moments of our lives aimed at building others up for the glory of God. It also means saying always that none of us are exempt you may be young or you may be old. You may be a brand new believer. You, know, you may be very seasoned in the faith. You may be single or married. You may be wealthy or poor. You may be supported relationally or you may be all alone. You may be affirmed by others or you may be ignored and marginalized. But you are to be always, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So always. Secondly, we, we should be abounding in the work. Be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Abounding is just the idea of boundlessness. It's overflowing. It's, it's excessive. The, 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 the sense of the word as eagerness and excess. That kind of gives you the shade of meaning here. And so if, just think of a kid that's you know, doing his chores. Just that phrase alone, it, it doesn't communicate eagerness and excess usually for most, for most kids in most, most homes. Uh, it, it is kind of doing the least with the least amount of effort and enthusiasm as possible and just to get it done. The minimum, the minimum is all we're looking for. That's very different from, you know, excessive, eager, enthusiastic work and looking for opportunities and how can I do this better. And that's very different. And so this, this is the idea of abounding, though. You can see the fullness of its meaning when you look to, to places that it's used elsewhere. Let me just give you one in particular. This should strike us. This is a very different context, but Ephesians 1.8. Ephesians 1.8. If you know about Ephesians, you know Ephesians 1, this glorious unfolding of all of God's redemptive grace in Christ towards us. And he says in verse 7, in, let's start in verse 7, In him, in Christ, you, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he, here's the word, lavished upon us. The same word is abounding which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. We are saved because God lavished. He, he abounded on us his grace. We're saved because his grace is so abundant. And so because God has so abundantly overdone himself in showing grace towards us in Jesus, we should, we should determine to overdo <coughs> ourselves in serving him. 
to whom we owe everything. We, we sing a song sometimes, all I have is Christ. It's kind of a modern hymn that we sing. And, and words that are just, the, the, most of the song is just pointing us to the fact that, oh, we're, we're hopeless without him. We have, we have nothing on our own, no merit of our own. Our only hope is Christ, and it's what he's done. And so, we, you know, there's words like, you've suffered in my place. And, and now all I know is grace, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. And then the last verse, it ends with this, this word, now, Father, use my ransomed life in any way you choose. Because that song, it's tying this in, because you've been so lavish in the way, in the grace that I have in Jesus, that just use me however you want. Psalm 116, 12 says the same idea. What, what shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? nothing's off limits and so the idea is is that because we truly believe in the resurrection our lives because we have this hope our lives our labor they point to that reality we live in light of christ's ultimate victory on our behalf in light of eternity now it's not to say we don't we deny the reality of living now that we're not living in the now as we say but we're living now in light of forever that's what that's the that's the hope. So it's always it's abounding work, and then it's it, we're we're to be compelled in the work, and that he this is where we end. He gives a final motivation for this exhortation. So notice on the front end of this verse, there's the therefore, there, and on the back end, there's this little phrase knowing. It starts with knowing. So knowing it's he's giving us a reason to re to remain firm in the gospel. And to resolve to keep laboring in the Lord. Because we know something. And so just, just when, we, when we use that little phrase knowing, it's, it's, it's giving us a reason. So just if, um, if we said a sentence like, the, the little girl jumped off the top bunk knowing her dad would catch her. What, what, how is that being used? It's, he's saying, you could say the little girl jumped off the top bunk because she knew her dad would catch her. So it's giving a reason. That's how this is functioning here. Because you know something, knowing. And so this is what he's saying. Let me, if I could give you the logic of the sentence, putting the therefore on the front end and the knowing on the back end, he's saying, death is defeated. That's the therefore. So your labor is not in vain. We know that. Therefore, remain firm in the gospel and abound in good work for the Lord. That's, what, that's the flow of the sentence. Death is defeated which means our reward is not only in this life. We will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And that's what's behind that little expression, not in vain, not empty, not worthless, not wasted. This is a figure of speech. It's saying, it's saying something positive by, by kind of negating the opposite. So if you, you, know, you see or you, hear, you see a muscle car pull up next to you at a light or something like that, or you see it in a parking lot and hear that rumble of that engine, you say... You know, he said, wow, that's powerful. And, and the guy says, yeah, yeah, she's not slow. And, and what is he saying? She, he's, she I'm sorry. She's, he, this is how guys talk about cars, I guess. But <laughs> it's fast. But, he, but you're saying it in a way, in an understated way, and that's what Paul's doing here. It's not in vain. And that's his way of saying it's rewarded. Oh, it's going to be, it's not wasted. It is, it is going to be there's going to be glorious benefits that await you. Your work is not in vain. It is rewarded. That's what he's saying here. Your labor, listen, your labor for the Lord, listen to me right now. You didn't quit taking notes. We're almost done, and we're going to come and eat and drink at the table. I know it doesn't always feel 
fruitful. It feels like it's in vain sometimes, doesn't it? It can feel wasted, your labor. Sometimes it, it feels fruitless. Sometimes we invest in labor and sweat and toil, and, and then it just crashes down around us. And, and, it, and all of the work, it just seems gone and forgotten. Sometimes parents pour their lives into a, a child, disciple them, raise them for 18 years, and then that child is taken tragically in a car accident. It's in vain. Is it in vain? Sometimes churches, we send and support missionaries to hard places, and they go and they labor for a decade, and they... And they, they're making contacts. And just when it seems like there's some traction and doors are opening for the gospel and things are happening, the government kicks them out and removes missionaries. This has happened many times. And we say, is it all in vain? Is it worthless? Sometimes teaching a Sunday school class, you've got those little kids and it doesn't seem like anybody's paying attention. And all you're doing is trying not to let anybody get hurt or at least visibly hurt. And... and and, 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 and you're just managing the chaos, and you say, is, this, is it in vain? Sometimes you're preaching and preparing sermons, and you pour your heart into it, and, it's, and, and, and it just feels to fall flat. I'm not this. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes you plead with a wayward son or daughter who's wandered away from the Lord, and, and you're with pure motives and with true love in your heart and speaking the truth and Genuine love for them, but it, it just seems to make zero impact. And you don't get to see that turning. But on the authority of Scripture, I can confidently to say to you today, it is not in vain. It's not wasted. At the end of life, of the end of this toilsome, wearisome life, moms and all of us, death is not just going to be this final insult to us. After, after this long, sore, wasted life, then death. No, not for you, dear brother. Not for you, dear sister. Not for you, moms. No, Christian, listen, death will be swallowed up in victory one day soon, and you will stand before the glorified Christ, and you'll see him face to face, and he will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of your master. We're tempted to give, to give our, we're tempted not to give ourselves to the work of the Lord. Not always, not abounding. Why? Because we're, we're tempted not to remain firm in the gospel and be steadfast and movable. We've seen that. And we have this enemy, this enemy of, enemy of our souls who's constantly whispering uh, to us and he's screaming to us at times, it's not worth it. It's all vain. It's all worthless. It's wasted. But it is not. It is not. And notice, Paul doesn't say, this is just something, this is not just something we believe, that's, which is powerful, faith. He says, this is something we know. <laughs> Knowing. There's a pattern throughout Scripture where there's this statement of, we know this, therefore. I, I have a whole list of verses, and we do not have time to walk through them, or we will not have time at the table here. And so I'm, but I'm just telling, this is the pattern of Scripture. Our lives are rooted in realities that can be known. And this is one of them. So he says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The work we do in the Lord can no more be wasted and perish and be 
blown away in the wind. No more than can that be true than the fact that, that he can be blown away and wasted. No, it's not possible. So moms, take heart. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It may be wearying. It is wearying. But it is not wasted. You won't always see the fruit of your labor. But God has told us we can be certain it's not in vain. Hebrews 6.10, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. He is not. He's not unjust, and it's not because you're so good and you've earned his eye of approval. The labor we do, notice what he says at the end of this verse, it's in the Lord. We are positionally in the Lord that's, what, that's how we can be certain that our labor is not in vain. And that's what this table is set to remind us. This is what we revel in. We revel in grace. This is one of the great themes that's run throughout this epistle, and this is how it ends. We, it's, it's grace. It's grace through and through. It's grace from that opening creedal formula that Christ died, rose again, died, was buried, rose again. It's grace that raised Christ from the dead as the first fruits of, of for all those who believe. It's grace that... That, that God is drawing all things in Christ and who reigns and, and conquers his enemies, even death. It's grace in providing an appropriate body for the resurrection. It's grace in enabling frail human beings like us to bear the image of the man of heaven. It's grace that ensures all of those who've died and even those who are still alive at Christ's returning will be transformed and raised to his likeness. It's grace in providing an appropriate response of celebration and to these wonders that are awaiting believers in, 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 when Christ returns. It's grace. And this is what goes back all the way to the beginning of the letter. And so the whole chapter has been this detailed, detailed analysis of the gracious results of gospel proclamation of Christ crucified. And, and remember how the letter began in chapter 1, verse 31. The whole point of all of this is let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Our boast is in him. So we're going to sing... We're going to pray, we're going to sing, and then we'll eat and drink together and revel in this grace together. Lord, we thank you for the grace that is ours in Jesus. And, 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 and I pray that you would move our hearts, that those of us who've experienced this love and grace, love and grace so amazing, so divine, it demands our lives, our souls, everything. And so may that, may that realization settle on us today. And even more as we eat and drink together in a moment and we sing of your grace now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to stand. We're going to sing a song. It's entitled Before the Father. Verse 2 here speaks to the reality of this table. Before the Father.